Welcome to AntimatterPod, a Star Trek podcast where we discuss fashion, feminism, subtext and subspace, hosted by Annika and Liz. Today we discuss the latest episode of Star Trek Discovery and Obel for Charon. Or Charon. So, so where should we start uh, this week? Well, the first thing on our list of things to talk about is the title. Yes, well, it's, it's sort of unwieldy, as, uh, as evidenced by our inability to pronounce it. Not that I'm complaining. Uh, I, oh, I, no. I love unwieldy Star Trek titles, and I like that Discovery is really committed to them. The first uh, season, they had quite a few... And and yeah, it looked like we were start we were seeing a return with season two to like the the simple one word titles that really defined Voyager, and, and so I'm glad that we're back to completely wanky titles. Yeah, that like if you if you know what they're referring to, you understand, and otherwise it's just like okay. Yes, so maybe. If you don't know, an obol is the coin that was given to the ferryman who takes you across the river to Hades. So it's all about snatching, I, I guess, death. And can we make an argument for the, ah, uh, oh, you know, the guy, he goes back, he's saving his wife from Hades. He looks back, she's gone. What's his face in Eurydice? Orpheus. <laughs> That's the dude, yes. I have a classical education. I have a degree in ancient history. Yes, Orpheus and Eurydice. Sure. I mean, uh, it, it's funny because in the episode with in the first season uh, where Stamets and Culber have, like, they listen to opera the first time in the network, <laughs> uh, I compared that to Orpheus and Eurydice. <laughs> Let's not get too far ahead of ourselves, but it does look like they're about to go into the underworld and pull some people out next week. So yes. this is all just foreshadowing. As much as this episode is episodic it, at times, don't worry. It's also part of the bigger story and serialized. And of course, to be continued in this particular case. Yes, which I, I'm glad about because I... <clears throat> I'm so sorry for our listeners. I have a bit of a cold. I'm a bit throaty. I, I thought that I would enjoy the mixture of episodic and serialized storytelling, but at this point in the season, it just feels like we keep stopping to nose around a side street and we just, we're wasting time, basically. I mean, I'm, I'm just going to say straight out that I've decided I don't like episodic. And when I really think about it, that's not a new thing. My least favorite part of The Next Generation in Voyager is the fact that so many plot threads just disappear because, yes. that's, that, because that's the way the medium was at that point. It was written to be episodic, uh, but it's, that's just not how I function. <laughs> so so it was, it's difficult for me. I, I always want them to, to go back and, uh, and keep pulling at the threads. That, yes. that, that come out in each story. It, it almost feels quite artificial, like they're, they're deliberately stretching the story out and we're starting to see the seams. The search for Spock is going on too long. <laughs> I, I'm, uh, yes. I'm tired of it. <laughs> I, I just want to get to Spock. I, I think at this point we, we have taken longer than the actual movie. So, so And uh, uh, I just, 
because much like my issues with Michael and Saru in the first season, I'm having the same issues with Michael and Spock that there, there's no growth. We're not getting anywhere. We're just rehashing the same discussion over and over again. Michael and Spock are at odds. It happens. Michael feels bad about yeah. it. I think she's had a serious conversation about it with just about everyone at this point. Yeah, and she and she keeps coming to the conclusion that she has to fix it. And it's like, okay, let's move on to the fixing instead of the talking about this needs to happen. Well, I don't. I, I wouldn't quite say that because I feel like last like. At the beginning of this episode, she has come to the conclusion in agreement with Amanda that she doesn't need to be the one to fix it. And Pike is the one going, yeah, but actually it would be really handy for me if you did. <laughs> yes, but, um, but by the end of the episode, she was back on board with, oh, I am going to fix it. And I'm not saying yeah, it wasn't... Way, either a... way, her growth is negated. Right. She's a little yo-yo. You know, I'm upset about Spock. I want to fix Spock. I feel bad about Spock, you know... It, and I'm I'm just ready for more. I'm ready for Spock to come in and, and see his side maybe or like see his side through her eyes. I just, I'm ready for the next step. Yeah, I think it is realistic for this kind of um, process to not be linear, but it's frustrating for the audience. Yeah. But I am much happier with the uh, Saru and Michael relationship. And obviously this was like a showcase for them. And it was beautiful. Oh, absolutely. And I, I really like that Michael has these two empathetic, deeply kind brother figures. Yeah. And, and it's great to see. Uh, that's what I, you know, I'm really interested in the compare and contrast. But because we don't have a Spock yet. And for that matter, we don't have um, Saru's sister. I feel like... There's a lot going on here, and I can see how they're going to end up being parallels and or intersections, and I'm excited for that, but I, I guess I'm impatient. <laughs> it just feels like we've been spinning our wheels for a few weeks plot-wise. We don't know anything more about the Red Bursts. We haven't had an update on the Red Angel this week. We've had a different kind of mysterious and ancient life form, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I think... I've wondered if maybe it would be better if we were binging the series because Linus says at one point, oh, I had a cold last week. And I'm like, that's cool, Linus. We know you don't blow your nose. But if only a week has passed since Pike took command of the Enterprise, then really they have achieved a tremendous amount in a short space of time. But it's been a month for the audience. It's interesting because, um, you know, because it's on a streaming service. And so, like, I, I can imagine that in their head they can see people binging it and even you know for lots of series uh, uh, I mean I don't have I don't have any version of cable or or television as it you know <laughs> as it was in the 90s and I only have streaming services and so if I like The Expanse for example just mm -hmm. season three just arrived on Amazon Prime, so I'm now watching season three, and I can binge it. And let me tell you, The Expanse is so much better when you can just keep watching it for ten hours. Like this doesn't shock me because I watched it. I watched season three week to week, and it was the first time previously I'd binged it, and it was a bit frustrating. Yeah, but I also think that maybe part of the being stuck that I feel in this episode was purposeful because they were stuck and there was like pike is really impatient to get to spock too so it, yes. it might have been part of like they were going to make 
the audience feel the same way as the characters. And I do appreciate that. That would be very clever. I'm not sure that leaving the audience frustrated and slightly <laughs> irritated is the way to go. But it's a brave choice. I mean, it's, it's, it's a choice. <laughs> um, and, and once again, I'm, there's lots and lots of people who really loved the way this episode played out because it is very uh, character and relationship focused, which I love. And, but the plot is very episodic. It, it's uh, it, everything, it starts and, and ends in the same, not counting the Tilly subplot. Mm. But uh, yeah, so I don't know. I, I, I really like the details of this episode, but the sum of everything uh, mm. wasn't as, as tight as I'd like it to be. I feel like I've been very negative and I should say I really enjoyed watching this episode. I had a tremendous amount of fun. It felt like a next generation plot was being used as the catalyst to trigger a whole lot of character development and I appreciated that. I just I just sort of walked away going, but the pacing. Exactly. I, I, I right. I really liked how like what was happening and I there was a lot of humor there was a lot of drama there was I mean I was had I cannot get over how much Saru has come to mean to me when he was so much my least favorite character at the beginning but I just I loved uh you know his performance was amazing uh Sinequa's performance was amazing everything was just there was a lot going on and it was really beautiful but the pacing. I absolutely, exactly, but the pacing. And, and as I think we said last week, this is just going to be Discovery's thing. And maybe that's okay. You know, I got through four seasons of Legend of Korra. I can get through this. So what, let, let's talk about things that we liked. I mean, the, the obvious is uh, Saru and Michael relationship. Um, and really the Saru and everyone relationship, you know, how they all honored him as he was leaving, how he was dying and, and was like facing down his, his death, but at the same time was going to save the ship and fix everything and make sure that everybody else wasn't dragged down with him. Yeah. And that felt very true to his character. He really aspires to be heroic which I think is in itself heroic yes yeah absolutely Uh, those are my favorite kinds of heroes are the ones who maybe aren't the best equipped to be like they're not superman but they are striving to be the best they can possibly be in every moment the never long bottoms and yes, exactly. They're they're just determined. Saru is the Neville Longbottom of Discovery. I like that. I think he's going to be the Harry Potter of the Kelpians. I so think like, that's not. You know, Nevilleness is uh, relative. Yeah, I mean, he clearly he is on a journey uh, in regards to his home planet that will be very interesting. And I I wonder. It's sort of like I I feel like we can see the end game. How much discussion is there going to be about should he interfere and do, and do and uh, now that he has this knowledge and I I'm curious as to I like I feel like it's building up for Saru to liberate the Kelpians but 
I'm interested in the next steps, in the middle steps, instead of just sort of showing up and being Harry Potter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and the the sense that he has to betray a promise that he made to Giorgio, and I do not think that Pike will be happy about this development and all of this. And I think it's really uh, potentially interesting and certainly probably the most personal uh, prime directive debate that Star Trek has had in a long time. I'm, uh, I'm excited to, to see the prime directive debated on a personal level or really debated in a new way, I guess. I feel like we've seen, you know, we have to break it in order to save them from something. Or, like, there's... I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm interested in a new debate on the Prime Directive. I don't know if we'll get it, <laughs> but I'm, I'm interested to see them try. Agreed, because I think in the 90s, the whole concept sort of drifted away from its foundations in the 60s of the Vietnam War and hey maybe we shouldn't use incredibly poor countries to uh, as the the location for our proxy wars and like that's good but then it turns into oh we've got all this amazing technology but we're just not going to actually use it to save anyone because that might interfere and that might be bad and it just felt like a convenient excuse for apathy. Yes, yes, exactly. I like the characters who are like, I'm going to defy everything and 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 try to uh, do something. And because that's, I don't know, maybe it's just a more exciting story and it, it brings up moral questions that are more interesting than the Federation being sort of this all-seeing, all-knowing, we're making decisions for everybody based on what we think. It's like, that's nice. I mean, the Cardassians never agree with you. And the Klingons don't currently agree with you. So it's, it's just the, the Federation making decisions because they think they know best is yes. not my favorite. Uh, I, I like to have that. Uh, I like to have that shown in a poor light because I believe <laughs> that it is a poor thing. This is very, very nerdy, but I'm glad that Lieutenant uh, Commander Nana's back, the security officer from the Enterprise. Wait, she's an engineer, isn't she? All this time I've been thinking she's security because she's wearing a red shirt. Anyway, uh, she is a Barzan, which is a race we see in one single episode of The Next Generation. And they're a pre-warp species, but the, no one seems to care about the Prime Directive. I, I guess some other race, probably the Ferengi, have just gone in and interfered with their culture and the federation's like okay so we'll trade with you and shit but you still don't have manned space flight and one that's interesting and complicated and i think maybe the next generation writers did not think that through but i feel like her story of how she came to be in starfleet is just as interesting as saru's yes it, it can't be a coincidence <laughs> that they chose her to be a barzan like I mean, it could be, but I'm hoping it's not. It could be, but there are a lot of textual links between this season of Discovery and season three of The Next Generation. There was Who Watches the Watchers. Uh, this is almost a remake of Tin Man. We had the Klingon politics and making a great personal sacrifice for the good of the Empire. You know, this is really pure Next Gen season three stuff. I guess we know what box set has been passed around the writer's room, maybe? <laughs> I think comparing this episode to Twisted, 
it's it has the same sort of there's a weird space intelligence that wants to talk to us and doesn't know how and we uh try to fight it for a while you know not like combat but you know fight against it and try to escape Mm. it um and completely fail and then realize that it just wants to talk to us and so we let it talk to us and then everything's okay you know, it's it's interesting because that also has scenes where the bridge crew are just sitting down and peacefully awaiting death the way Saru does. Exactly. And the good parts of that episode are all the character relationships. They really explore, like, almost every relationship on Voyager in that one episode. It's, you know, this terrible plot. And they're not exactly well-written scenes about their relationships, <laughs> There's a lot of Neelix being jealous of everyone who speaks to Kes, including the women. But there so. is a very interesting exploration, especially in the end when they all like, well, like Tuvok convinces everybody to just sort of let everything go and see what happens. And they all like, they, they, they might die. So they go to like the one person who understands them the best on the ship. So that like, is paralleled with the Michael and Saru. No, it was a really good character piece and we got moments for a lot of the supporting cast. We got Linus doing something other than sneezing on people. Uh, We saw a bit more of Narn. We saw how she interacts with the Discovery crew. All that stuff is really cool and it felt much, much more organic and natural than previous explorations of the bridge crew have been this season we also got the return of jet reno and the introduction of number one there was a lot there was a lot going on (laughs) i I want to talk about number one because i feel like her personality has been radically altered from her appearance in the cage but i find i don't mind because i like her so much is that weird am i a hypocrite uh, no, I mean, I, I loved her. I mean, she didn't do anything and she, she, like, nothing happened, but, um, but I loved her immediately. I like, uh, her confidence. I like her food choices. <laughs> she was just a lot of fun and it's like, there's a lot of promise. There's a lot of potential and a lot of promise there. It's like, oh yeah. I, and they, the, there's like the, the hints that they of their relationship. I still don't really have a good handle on it. It's like they're obviously they're close because they are the captain and first officer. But I I don't know. I'm just I'm excited for more. Everything she did was adorable, <laughs> and and uh, but she doesn't get a lot to do in the cage either. I guess <laughs> I feel like. Um, and I've, I haven't read any tie-in in stuff with that character. She sort of exists in my head more than she exists mm. in canon for me. And so I was just so excited for her to be there, and I'm so excited for her potential. Like, it's going to be really hard for them to ruin her for me, I guess is what I'm saying. <laughs> like, it's going to be difficult for them to screw her off. Because characters that, like... The show doesn't even pay pay much energy or effort on tends to be my favorite characters anyway. So I'm just really excited for her. <laughs> but I didn't have that I didn't have that like she's different feeling. I had there's not enough. <laughs> her whole thing in the cage was that she was super logical, not uh, not emotional. She was basically the Spock of the cage. And I realized that 
she is Michael Burnham and Michael was directly inspired by her as a character so it would be really hard to put the two of them in a scene together but I'm on the one hand I'm sorry they didn't try or that they're not going to try on the other hand we now have a new and different kind of female character and that's cool too and I like the idea that she is I think Rebecca Remain described her as a fast-talking broad Damn. <laughs> yes, yes. The sort of character who makes connections and gets information and everyone ends up owing her a favour. Like, that's cool. That's a really cool character type and we haven't seen it, we rarely see it in Star Trek in general and certainly never as a woman. Yes. And I can't remember where I saw it, but I remember one one viewer said somewhere, I didn't think I liked her and then I realized like it doesn't matter whether I like her or not she's just that's who she is and that was when I realized I did like her does that does that make sense I'm so sorry I'm so bad at words today no that that makes perfect sense I I mean I I certainly like like I just said the the characters that canon doesn't care about are my favorites Mm. and those are also the characters that the audience doesn't like because they they, you know, come off as more plot points or, or quote-unquote unlikable or villains or, you know, just sort of, um, not villains so much as antagonist. Um, mm. I, because, like, a villain gets characterization and, and a, a, a plot and a point and, and people like, uh, you know, writers like to write villains, but antagonists, like plot antagonists, mm. tend not to be, like, they're there to further the story and so they don't get as much depth or or breadth of character yes though but those are the characters that i'm always the most interested in because i like to think about you know i try to try to connect the dots and 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 see and put them into the big picture it's like a it's like a puzzle for me the idea that like oh i didn't i didn't like her or you know i just got this weird feeling about her that i i and then realizing that she doesn't exist to be liked or she doesn't and she doesn't even really exist to be a part of the story like she exists at, to exist i guess uh, that's really interesting to me those are the those are the characters that really capture me i think what she has in common with not the number 1 of the cage is that she's just doing her job and she has her relationships but she is not written to be a quote-unquote likable character or likable female character in a Hollywood production. There's nothing cute or apologetic about her. And that's really cool. And, you know, Discovery in general is quite good with, with doing that with women. You know, there's certainly nothing cute about Michael, but it's it's good that Michael is not the only one because obviously Tilly is just adorable and I defy anyone to not like Jet Reno. I, I've seen some people not like her. I don't get it. I mean, I, I, I think that she has a, you know, a scarabic wit about her that is also not beloved in a female character. And it's funny because, like, everybody, you know, they didn't love Stamets because he was such a grump and he was so mm. sort of, like, prickly all the time. But then you get to know him and the, and they... They became, you know, he became one of the crew and he became someone we love and he has this whole sort of tragedy going on with him. So now he's like, you know, everybody's little puppy Stamets. And here comes Jet Reno 
to make fun of his like work and and poke at him and you know completely like she's not everybody's sort of walking on eggshells around him for for good reason <laughs> um yes. but she's not because she doesn't know his history and she doesn't know you know and she, and she doesn't seem the type to walk on eggshells anyway no and she's just spent 10 months keeping people alive in ridiculously terrible conditions so she's probably got her own trauma going on and she's doesn't seem to be a particularly delicate flower so now you know that there there was a contingent of people who didn't like her because she was beating up on Stamets or calling him out and and it was sort of like it's so funny to me because that's what people didn't like about Stamets (laughs) it's just you know like from a sociological standpoint so interesting to see these cycles continue yes but I mean I thought like their banter was great the the I I missed um I I loved team science and which was Stamets Tilly and Michael and Michael was too busy running around the ship doing everything <laughs> this uh, this episode, yes. and really, that's what she's always doing. <laughs> Michael's always too busy running around the ship doing everything. So it was great to bring in Jet Reno to be the the newest member of Team Science and have them, you know, and again, like not have them have to figure out how to work together. But they they absolutely did. It was like when they were presented with a problem, everybody. They, they were still, you know, bantering and, and snarking each other, but they focused on the problem and fixed it. And Yeah, yeah. Which I think is, again, classically Star Trek. You, you, it's not that you're suddenly best friends, but you can put your differences aside to get the job done and in that process discover that your differences are not what you thought they were or less significant or even just that they can be set aside as can, can be a really significant revelation. Yes. I do feel badly for Stamets that uh, now that May's got her message out, <laughs> that his jaunt, and again, his life's work, is, is yes. harming her and her people. But he, he, he went straight from, oh God, to, okay, we'll stop, I'm sorry, how could we fix it? Yes. Uh, because he's a, a decent person who really cares about people he's just not a he's not a warm and fuzzy i'm glad that finally we have maybe a reason that the spore drive is not around in the 24th century and even if it's known technology there's a reason that Catherine janeway didn't single-handedly jump into the mycelial mycelial network through the sheer power of caffeination and determination alone like it, it would be like um oh, i'm so sorry the ship captain Ransom Equinox, yes, that, that that's powering its way through the Delta Quadrant by exploiting a life form that helps them travel faster. And she's exactly, exactly that. that. And she's very, very against that. Yes, yes, like that. Finally, is an explanation that completely makes sense to me. Uh, having said that, May has some other agenda beyond simply telling them to stop. And now she's got Tilly, and they're in the upside down, and it's going to be great. But yeah, it was. She's definitely in the upside down. It was. It was like such a. Uh, it was the same scene as Stranger Things. I really enjoyed it. <laughs> it's a uh, homo- It's an homage. I love homages. <laughs> yeah, I was. It's. Yeah, I was. Uh, I've started watching Neon Genesis Evangelion with my kids. I loved it, you know, in the 90s. So we started, and in 
the first episode, and they're, they're like, not you know, I don't understand anything that's going on here. I'm like, yeah, that's that's what you know, Evangelion. You don't understand what's going on. Yeah, I, I haven't watched it, but that's my understanding. But there's this scene where with uh, the UN and you know the the creepy scientist guy who is in charge of Nerve is having a, a meeting with other creepy scientists and politicians, um, and they all are in shadow. The, the scene the, in, the, in the pilot episode of Discovery where uh, at the very end when she's on trial and there's yes. just like shadow people. <laughs> and I, when, I, the, when I first saw that last year, I was like, wow, this is just like Evangelion. <laughs> I don't trust them at all. And, and so we watched that last night and, and I realized that this second season, you know, I just thought that only I would think that was like Evangelion. But mm. I realized that this second season is based entirely around the Red Angel. And I looked at the picture and it is like just the same as the giant <laughs> creature that shows up at the end of Evangelion. And I was like, wow! Okay, so actually, someone in the writer's room of Discovery also loved Evangelion in the 90s and wanted to write it into it like this is my new theory I think I think that theory holds a lot of water and if I had to point at any one individual in the writer's room I would be pointing at Bo Yon Kim who seems like a giant giant nerd yes I can absolutely say it and I just and I approve I just want to put that out there good choices <laughs> So what you're saying is that after 20 years of being dimly aware that it existed, but never anything more, I should maybe watch Evangelion? It's supposed to be coming to Netflix this year, at least in oh, the United States. You can, hopefully you can, uh, you can get it and, and find out. <laughs> so yeah, that, that was my <laughs> shout out to another pop culture favorite of this, of this week. <laughs> I feel like I've learned something. The other thing that I... There was a, a scene that was posted on, I think, io9, and the final version for broadcast or streaming or whatever was cut, but in the original version there was a line about dilithium mining and its impact on planets and it's not a sustainable practice. And I thought that one was really cool but uh, as a bit of world building, but it also ties interestingly into the short trek The Runaway where Tilly meets the princess of a planet and she, it's rich in dilithium, it's very important, but she has come up with a way to uh, recrystallize dilithium so that, that, that there's less need to mine it. I, I'm intrigued by this uh, sustainability thing that they have going in the background. Yes, and there was a line about that in the actual episode. Maybe I was just distracted. I was intrigued, like, I was just like, it's so interesting um that they are discussing sustainable energy in star trek it's like yes uh you know going back to your roots of talking about what's going on right now in thinly veiled <laughs> realities of star trek and, and that was an issue last season as well with the um I almost want to say strip mining of the mycelial network to power the car the charon or charon in the the mirror universe and Stamets going, but who, what kind of person would just keep using energy knowing it's going to destroy the whole universe? Uh, that sounds pretty human to me, to be honest. Mm. And you know what? The Terrans are still us. <laughs> Turns <Yeah>. out. <laughs> God bless us, everyone. So yeah, I'm, I'm intrigued, but I, I mean, 
I could tell that there was an environmentalist lean uh, to the whole mycelial network at all, you know, entirely. Um, and so I'm really glad that they're exploring different ways of, of looking at it. Because there's lots of questions, you know, it's not like it's, it's, these are really, really hard questions. <laughs> anyway, let's talk about Christopher Pike's interesting relationship with honor. Yes, tell me about that, because you've seen something that I've missed. Well, I've just, you know, you've said in, in, in our previous episodes uh, discussing Discovery that uh, he's, the, he's not Lorca. He, he keeps being really upstanding and honorable. I know, and I'm over it. <laughs> and, uh, and so I've, I've really paid attention to him uh, this time, and he like he literally says something like i've taken an oath and and then i thought about it and i was like whoa you know what in the first episode he talked about honor and in the second episode he talks about you know being true to his oaths in terms of general order one and mm -hmm. in the third episode he said he told amanda and michael that he couldn't read spock's medical file because that would be unethical and he's a man of honor and so it's like Christopher Pike really wants us to know <laughs> that he is a man of honor and he he really takes his oaths to Starfleet and his morality seriously. I hope this is foreshadowing for him like going off and doing something not necessarily shady but breaking that oath for the greater good. I just like I can't tell if it's like the writers as you know you said uh, two episodes ago I think overcompensating and mm. um, you know to be like hitting us with a hammer that Christopher Pike is a good guy and he's like the perfect Starfleet captain he's a pinnacle of morality or if it's something about Pike that he thinks he's not the pinnacle of morality and so he has to keep like he's overcompensating like is it the writers or is it the character i don't know yet but i'm going to keep watching for it well i wasn't going to stop watching but i am i am intrigued by this because i had not noticed this at all and i see my theory, my thinking is I think it's foreshadowing, but this is also wishful thinking because I kind of want him to be in conflict with Cat Cornwell and to call her out when he discovers the fairly shady decisions that she made at the end of last season and specifically uh, putting Giorgio in command of Discovery and letting the Federation think that this is or letting people think that this is the real Giorgio. Mm. And even right. if he, even if it's not specifically against Cornwell, mm. setting him up to be this moral pillar as we're reintroducing Section 31, oh, like yeah. I, I can see him being the voice of everybody who is against even the idea of Section 31 and, you know, being the, uh, the Starfleet Boy Scout side of that debate. So I think there is a purpose to it, even if it's sort of, even if it is being overplayed, I think there is a, a reason. And I am very willing to, even, even if it is the writers, to read it as the character and have him, like, have this sort of, like, guilt or something mm. ab about something that, that he did 
in the past or something that just sort of fights, you know, just human nature. Everybody has a little bit of darkness in them. And uh, maybe he's uh, over-concerned with his own. I'm not sure it has been overplayed because, like I said, I didn't notice it at all. And obviously, if I didn't notice, no one did. <laughs> well, I mean, maybe the, just that the you kept bringing, bringing up uh, him not being shady is why, <laughs> was why I started paying attention. <laughs> and, and also that everyone just really loves him as this really great, oh, oh the captain that, that we've been waiting for which is interesting to me. Yeah, I know a couple of people who don't like him, but they were predisposed not to like any white man taking over as captain, which I respect, but uh, it's not that I find him intrinsically interesting because I generally don't find that type of character intrinsically interesting, but I think he's a good foil for everyone else. Yes. When I said I, I would keep watching for it, like I'm more interested, I'm interested in this sort of side story about Pike that could completely be in my head. Like I'm not saying that that uh, that it's meant to be because I'm like really good at making up my own version of reality. But I'm I'm really like I I was all I was already on board with him as you know the the good guy captain, and I was enjoying his portrayal. But now I'm like interested in his character. Mm. I, I'm interested in him beyond what he's doing for everybody else. This certainly makes him more interesting to me as well. And if it is foreshadowing for him making some kind of difficult choice that he would normally consider unethical, I'm here for that. Like, I don't want him to be to become a villain, but just as I was really on board for Cat's terrible decisions last season, I do enjoy the story of finding out what it takes for a fictional character to compromise their principles and how they come back from that. Yes. And he already seems like really invested in Spock. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and I mean, he, he's obviously been on, on his, you know, dedicated to his mission, but that's sort of like in it, that makes sense along with the Pike that we, that we have been introduced to, but he's also like, is, is Spock, like, a member of his flock that he has to go? His interest in, in, in Spock uh, has, again, they're, like, pushing the anticipation, I guess, for mm. Spock's going to come, Spock's going to come. But, like, this particular, this episode, he seemed really worried that they were, like, he seemed more worried that they were going to lose Spock's trail than they were like going to get sucked into whatever this thing is that was going to destroy them all. It was <laughs> sort of like perspective, Pike. <laughs> Everyone could die or you could lose Spock's trail. I feel like one of these things is worse. I felt like that was one of the bit where we could see the gears moving and that they wanted to keep the audience in mind of the fact that this was a possibility and that they needed to keep Spock the tension high with Spock but yeah yeah it didn't work for me I was except uh, that now I'm like okay why 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 is he so why does he need to go see Spock so badly what like does he need to save him is this a uh you know Janeway saving people thing going on here like I'm I'm more interested in Pike because he came off as a little bit weird a little bit little bit off for this episode it was like there's something strange going on with him I have to admit if I was a Pike Spock shipper I would be really happy I know I was that sorry I was like you know someone stopped me from shipping 
Pike and Spock because I really don't want to, but this episode kind of wants me to. Like, uh, I'm not going to stop you. <laughs> I, I still haven't found the the person that I want to ship Pike with. I don't know. I don't know why. Like, usually I, I ship everyone with everyone and I can, like, I can sort of, I can see reasons for everybody, but there's no one that I'm like, yeah, that's the right person. Like, and which is strange. I kind of like the idea of him at some point in the past having had a thing with Lorca, but that's because I feel like we are well past time, well past due to have bisexual Starfleet captains. And they're both so pretty. (laughs) Pretty boys. Pretty arrogant boys. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I just, you know, Starfleet captains, it's an exclusive siblinghood. Alright, I want to talk about Saru's quarters. Because we we talked about it in relation to him, but oh my gosh, the the production design. That was magnificent. Uh, It was so, I mean, first of all, it was just exciting to see one of our alien characters have really alien alien quarters. (laughs) It was just, oh, finally, you know, like, uh... We usually just get, like, mood lighting to make the difference between an alien's quarters and a human's quarters. But this was just, it was, it it was round, there were just plants everywhere, it was, it was, like, his bed was this weird, in the middle, everything about it was so thrilling it was actually like I had to force myself to pay attention to what was going on. And it was like the best scene in the episode easily. And yet I was like totally distracted by the amazing quarters and Saru's chest and like all, all of this other stuff that was going on. Um, and it was only when Michael like her voice broke and and uh, Sinequa was like near tears that I was like, oh, wait. I need to be like, this is this is a big dramatic moment. I need to pay attention to that. <laughs> if you didn't watch the, the short trek, there is so much world building through set design here. And it's just extraordinary. Uh, and the attention to detail. And uh, I did rather wish that Saru would put a shirt on because that was distressing, distressing and distracting. But I might be bigoted against guys who have really weird chests I don't know it it, like you know and it it even like helped make uh his whole experience on Pavo more resonant like there was just so much in that just having moss everywhere I was just like this is so so beautiful and as a person who is only now learning to garden and I think I said this in chat too I would really enjoy an official web series where Doug Jones as Saru talks about houseplants for 15 minutes yes and you know what he could like he could introduce us all to like all of the different uh, plant species like fauna of the galaxy it would be so good like it would be amazing yeah, like, here is some Vulcan bonsai, and this is how you care for bonsai on Earth. It would be great. It would be so good. Like, I'm, I'm 100% I would uh, contribute to that Kickstarter or whatever. Like, I'm ready, CBS. 
come on. I'm already giving you $10 a month. I'm ready to give you more. I have to say, because it was Friday night and Australia's internet was is famously rather poor, uh, it was a very stop-start stream on Netflix this week. I felt like I was getting the full CBS All Access experience. Um, one final thing about the plants, because I just really liked it, uh, is that, you know, coupled with Michael being the, you know, she is is going to be the tool to help him end his life uh, but instead is the tool to bring him back mm. is a, a beautiful that is a beautiful fairy tale like the whole you know, everything about the kelpians is very folklore to me yes and there you know the the still the promotional still that they released uh previous to the episode has like michael holding his hand and leaning down and he's laying out on his bed and it's all surrounded by greenery and there's like one big beautiful kelpian flower next to it and i was that i the, the first thing i saw was snow white i and and then i thought about it and i was like yeah that's actually a really good like version of Snow White in that she, you know, because they like literally declare their love to each other <laughs> and then she brings it back to life. Yes. And there, it was just, I was like, wow, you know, I'm really into this fairy tale. And it, and it was interesting to me that I kept complaining, of, and I did it again this episode, about Saru like never getting over his issues with Michael and it was just he he just kept saying the same thing over and over again there were yes. like six episodes yeah. where they had the same conversation and so this was him being you know in the all of like this back half of the first season and in the second season that has not been true like Saru has come into his own and he's become a much more uh three-dimensional character but it, this was like his final transformation, which was what they were going for. You know, he, he is being exactly literally transformed into a new type of being. And so I really liked the, the fairy tale imagery that I saw in this because that's, I mean, that's what ultimately fairy tales are about is transformation. Yes. Do you think that he is going to change in personality now that he is not beholden to, I guess, biological fear? Such a good question. And it's like, do we want him to? Like, do you, you know, I worry um, about it a little because it's sort of like a lot of people relate to his anxiety and if he's just sort of cured that that's a little dodgy it's a little star trek of them (laughs) but um not giving a map for how to do it just sort of saying it's done yeah but at the same time this isn't in a different case and it is sort of it does also say that you know mental health is also chemical it is also yeah. biological. There are physical issues. And if you do, you know, take a certain medication or you uh, rewire your brain through 
all sorts of different kinds of therapies, then you you can have that transformation. Yes, your biology is not destiny. So I'm, I'm of two minds. As long as they do it well, <laughs> or at least do it with good intentions and, and earnestly, <laughs> then, then I'm on board. If he's just a new person, I'm not really into that. <laughs> I think, like, I would understand if he goes through temporary personality changes as he tries to figure himself out, but I... I don't you know they were talking so much about what an empathetic person he is and I'm concerned that that's what he's going to lose and I'm sure it won't be permanent but much like Tilly I never want anything bad to happen to Saru yeah I don't want anything bad to happen to any of them I just want to give them all a big hug but at the same time I want terrible things to happen to all of them (laughs) like I'll be honest I'm always up for all the terrible things as like you know because that's showing these characters that I have come to care about, and I care about like all of them, go through difficulties and come out better for it. And also come out changed. I mean, that's why I'm studying trauma in Star Trek is because I learned something from that. And because I think it's really, really important to say that trauma happens no matter how hard you try to avoid it it's like even in the most pristine utopia you can imagine bad things happen and people have to deal with them but we can and sometimes the story is you know what's the next step where do you go after this yeah and sometimes the story is saying you know okay, I'm, I'm going to leave now, you know, I'm giving up on one thing in order to do another. Like, there are, there are many different stories. It doesn't have to be uh, resilience and perseverance in the most complete sense. Like, you don't have to be beaten down to your worst, you know, to, till you're nothing in order to rise back up again. You can also make the cho- choice to say, I'm not going to play this game and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find a different way. Just, just throwing it out there. And so that's why I think, like, I think that Saru, and I would be, I want to see him go through a transformation. I want to see him play with not being afraid um, and how that changes him. But I don't want him to fundamentally change. I just want him to, to become more Saru. Yeah, yeah. I want him to grow, but not at the expense of what he's been before. Right. He, he's a plant, not a butterfly. <laughs> oh, I love Saru. And his, I love him as a plant. I reaching up to the, you know, past, <laughs> past where any other vines went <laughs> to, oh. to see the sky. Oh, but not so losing his roots, you know? I'm like, look. I feel like I've accidentally stumbled on a genius metaphor. I agree. And uh, thank you for making my my obsession with his quarters and my uh, my fairy tale ideas even more poignant. (laughs) Oh, we're we're almost out of time, but we haven't really talked about Tilly. Is there much to talk about? 
mostly I was shouting mentally, this is why you should have spoken to May last week before you pulled her out of the body. Yeah, I mean, I feel like the Tilly stuff was set up for next week. Yeah. They said, they said well, oh, it's too bad we can't talk to her. <laughs> it's like, yeah, maybe God. you should have talked to her while she was talking to you. But okay, now that uh, I, I liked that Tilly trusted Stamets and Reno. Yes. Because she was afraid, you know, that's why she didn't tell anybody what was going on to begin with. And, but I do think that it's sort of it's much more fundamentally Tilly to trust people than to hold things in. Yes. And so I was glad to see that she's sort of rebounding into that, even if it got her sucked into the upside down. It's okay because we're gonna Eurydice her out and pick up Hugh while we're there, and it'll be great. That's exactly right. Everything's gonna work out for the best. Just have to you know fight a few monsters. That's all. Yeah. Yeah, that demogorgon, what can it do? Oh my god, May was a demogorgon all along. <laughs> Poor May. I have to say, sorry, just thinking of May, I thought Mary Wiseman did a really good job with her accent. It didn't come across as cartoonish or insulting. Yes, it was, it was believable. Whereas her singing voice is believably terrible. <laughs> but that was such a sweet scene, though. Oh, I know. I loved it. It made me so happy. And I think that of all the the music legends of the 20th century, Bowie is definitely one that I can see surviving among the nerds of the 23rd. But yeah, I think I think the weakness of Tilly's voice made it all the sweeter. Better. Right. Yeah, I agree that it was it was very it made it more of a moment. Oh, hello. <laughs> My cat says we're done. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Antimatterpod. Please rate and review us on iTunes. Five-star reviews help make us visible to the algorithm that rules everyone's lives. You cannot support us on Patreon or like us on Facebook. However, we are now on Twitter at at Antimatterpod. You can also find us at antimatterpod.tumblr.com, including links to our social media and credits for our theme music. Please send vaguely positive thoughts in our direction and join us next week for more discovery. You know, every time we have the bit about five-star reviews, I'm like, do we deserve five-star reviews yet? But then I leave it in because why unnecessarily put yourself down, I guess. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to balance realism with (laughs) self-confidence. And like discovery, we're improving.